0: well this is the second Sunday in Advent and uh, by the way if I've not had a privilege of meeting you I'm Dan Beck and senior pastor here and last week Pastor Joel preached and did such a great job introducing our Advent series called Vantage. Vantage. Anybody here see the movie Vantage? Anybody? Nobody. It grossed 148 million dollars according to Wikipedia. Vantage is a movie where the president gets kidnapped by some terrorists, and they're like, "Right, vantage point." No, I'm talking about a French film called Vantage. I'm sorry, you're mistaken. Vantage Point, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Anyway, the movie, as many of you probably know, it, it looks at, a, at the kidnapping of the president from different points of view. And when you saw it from just one point of view, whether it be the police officer or the security detail or the president himself, you saw one specific way. And you developed in your mind a narrative on how you thought things went down. And the movie shows you all the perspectives, four or five of them, and at the end of the movie, they kind of put it all together. And then you understand, oh, I get who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, and understand how this thing went down. Well, this Advent season is focusing on looking at the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, from different vantage points, from different perspectives. Last week, Pastor Joel uh, opened up and looked at what the Bible tells us about Uh, Jesus coming from the book of Psalms. Today I'm going to look from the book of Micah. And then next week we look from the Gospels and from the Epistles. And all together we're going to get a good picture of the qualities and the mission of, of our Savior. In the Old Testament, the Pentateuch presents the Messiah as priest. The prophets present him more as a king. The wisdom literature presents him as a sage. The New Testament, he's presented as a redeemer who ushers in a kingdom that culminates in his second coming. Now, when you read the Old Testament today, and I hope you do read the Old Testament, there's different ways of interpreting the Old Testament. Probably the best way to interpret the Old Testament is to look for Jesus in all of the stories. Look for Jesus in all of the books of the Bible. Jesus is the meta narrative of the scripture. The Bible's not written primarily as a philosophical document, historical document, a medical document, a, 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 a mathematical document. It's written primarily to reveal to us God, to reveal to us ourself in relationship to God, and to reveal a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. 600 references directly or indirectly to the Messiah in the Old Testament. In, the, in this time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and the Bible says that God fed them with manna, well, that was manna from heaven, but that was prefiguring the Messiah who would be the bread of life. And when they got water out of the rock, it was prefiguring that Jesus would give the water of eternal life and that he be the rock upon which we build our life. The events of the Old Testament, David and Moses, they are prefiguring Christ. The Old Testament is pointing us forward to a Messiah who was going to be coming. When Philip was called by Jesus to come and follow him, the Bible says that Philip went to his brother Nathanael in John chapter 1 and says, I have found the one that Moses told us about. How does that work? Moses didn't make any direct references to the Messiah, but Moses did say, there will be a prophet that comes after me that will be greater than me, prefiguring the Messiah. You might say, well, where's the first reference of the Messiah in the Bible? It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned and God's pronouncing a curse on the serpent and a curse upon mankind, he says that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. Ah, there's a reference to the coming of the Messiah. A few chapters later, here's Abraham. How does Abraham prefigure the Messiah? God said to Abraham, you're going to have a seed, Abraham. And your seed is going to be a blessing to all the nations and every person on the earth, prefiguring the Savior. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, Luke chapter 24, he's on the road to Emmaus and there's two disciples that had just been in Jerusalem. They'd just seen all the stuff that went on there, the crucifixion. The resurrection, the story that Jesus had come back out of the grave, and they're talking to each other and saying, "Man, what happened back there? I don't know what would you think happened back there?" And Jesus catches up to them, and the Bible says that Jesus began with Moses and the prophets, and he showed them where all of Scripture was concerning himself. Wow, I'd love to bend in on that sermon. All of Scripture was about the Savior pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah. That's why history is B.C. and A.D. The coming of the Messiah beginning at Bethlehem, culminating in the resurrection in Jerusalem, is the pivot point of history. Today's message is entitled, Why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? The most predictive prophecy in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, found in Micah chapter 5. Now, there's a lot of verses in the Bible, as I mentioned, that point to Jesus. There's only about a dozen that predict in clear words what he, what he was going to do. He was going to die. He's going to have his hands pierced. He's going to be on a cross. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. All the other verses were point to him, but there's not, they're not predictive. They point to him and he's the embodiment of them. He's the Moses. He's the Elijah. He's the David. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. But the ones that are predictive, about a dozen of them, are incredible. Scholars say that one we look at today is probably the most incredible. Because it predicts exactly where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, you might think, well, you know, a guy fulfilling four or five prophecies, that's not that big of a deal. Maybe the writers of the Bible saw Jesus, found out where he was born, then went back and rewrote the Old Testament to fit all that stuff in there. Now, there's a whole bunch of problems with that. First of all, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have uncovered parts of Micah and the whole book of Isaiah that were written hundreds of years before Jesus came. So all those prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, they were written down before he even came. That's kind of a tough one to explain if you're not a Christian. you might say, well, maybe just coincidence that one guy could, you know, here you go. Take five Old Testament predictive prophecies about Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, this is the Advent season, the word Advent means coming, Jesus coming, right? Let's just pick five. Do you know what the odds are that one person could randomly fulfill all five prophecies? Well, they did the math on it. I'm a math, did y'all know I have a master's degree in math? That's why I count the offering. A little for you, a little for me, a little for you, a little for me, a little for you, a little for me. It's a give and take relationship. So I understand uh, a little bit about how they come up with this number. And they said, this is the odds that one person could randomly collect, fulfill five prophecies. Cover the state of Texas with quarters two feet deep. Cover the state with quarters Two feet deep, and mark one quarter with an X. And then travel to Texas, walk around this gigantic state, and pick out one quarter out of a stack two feet high that's as far as you can see, and you happen to pick out the quarter with the X on it. That's the odds. I think that takes more faith. That takes more faith for me to believe that a guy coincidentally fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies than for Jesus to actually be the Son of God and God being God could predict his coming and give us clues to that in the Old Testament. If you're with me on that, would you say amen to that? In Matthew chapter two, verses one through six, I'll put verse six on the screen here in a moment. Here's the narrative of Jesus' birth. And I want you to notice how they link it to prophecy. Today's sermon, why Bethlehem? Well, it was predicted to be Bethlehem. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, unquote. Let's stop right there. How Did the magi know that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem? I know they're following a star, but hey, following a star is not that easy. Like, is that star over there or is the star over there? Looks like it's shining over there. Well, I think it's moving. Well, I I think the star's been there the whole time. How do they follow? Because they have evidently been acquainted with an Old Testament prophecy from 700 years before from the prophet. Let's continue with that story. Uh, Unquote. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? Now, every observant Jew knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, this is the number one prophecy. This is the one the kids memorize. This is the Sunday school verse that they take home. This is the verse that's written on the side of the church. This is the big verse. We're going to come to it in just a second. And yet Herod doesn't know the verse that just shows me the level of his faith in God. So he asks The scribes are, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they say to him, quote, in the verse six, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so was written by the prophet, quote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, there's the key word, who shall shepherd, Another key word, my people Israel. Where did this prophecy come from? It came from Micah chapter 5. Micah, contemporary of Isaiah. Micah at the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion of Israel and Judah. Micah prophesied somehow under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that one day, seven centuries from the day he penned it, There would be a ruler, a Messiah, Christ the Lord, who would come and shepherd his people, redeem his people, gather his people, and rule them well. Verse two, Micah chapter five. We all with me? We all with me? Okay, everybody got their Bibles or on your phones or following along. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Pause. There's two Bethlehems in the Bible. There's one in Judah there's one up north. Bethlehem, Ephrathah is the one in the south. It's just a few miles from Jerusalem. I've been to Bethlehem a lot. And where Jerusalem ends and Bethlehem begins, there's a wall today, but I mean, it's just kind of continuous houses. I mean, it's very close. Ephrathah would essentially mean from Judea or Judah. Bethlehem of Judah, you are too little to be among the family groups of Judah. But from you, one will come who will rule for me in Israel. His coming was planned long ago from the beginning. This verse says who Jesus is, where he's from, and what he's come to do. Bethlehem is... Is the uh, means the house of bread? Bet means house. Lahem means of bread the house of bread. There would be a day from the house of bread, a savior who would come, who's the bread of life. And when you eat of his bread, you shall never hunger again. That man of bread was gonna be coming from the house of bread from a small, insignificant little town. Bethlehem is so small. That in that in the that in the Pentateuch when they're and also later when they're listing the the cities in Judah, it's not even mentioned. And when they list all the clans, it's not even mentioned. It would be like Union Center, South Dakota. Union Center, South Dakota has four people. I know Union Center. I hunt, I used to hunt by Union Center. You don't even, it doesn't even have a stop sign. You hear about little towns that have one stop sign? This is a no stop sign town. There's a bar and a gas station. How do I know there's a bar? I'll leave that to your own imagination. It's a little town. This is like Bethlehem. It's small and It's insignificant. And Micah is saying, look, there's judgment coming to Israel. God is not pleased with your idolatry. But then in this verse it says, but as for you, in other words, there's a a change of trajectory where Micah 4 says there's judgment coming. Micah 5 says, but be of good hope. There is a Messiah who's coming, who's going to change the trajectory of our nation. And by prophetic implication, He's going to change the trajectory of anyone who receives him as a savior. And he says, this Messiah is going to rule for me. He's going to rule for me. Now, here you go. This is a long prophecy. Micah chapter five, verse one, the prophet is speaking. Micah chapter five, verse three, the prophet, verse four, the prophet, verse five, the prophet, and all the way down. Verse two is the only verse in Micah chapter five where God is talking. Not the prophet and not God through the prophet. But God is speaking first person. And he's saying here, there's going to one that is going to come who will rule for me, capital M-E, God speaking. There's one coming from God who is going to be God in the flesh, the Messiah who will rule. Bethlehem, why Bethlehem? You know, Jacob had a favorite wife, Rachel. Rachel's last child, Benjamin, she died in childbirth to give birth to him. In her pain of childbirth, she named her son Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob renamed the boy Benjamin, which means son of of my right hand. As if to say, as if to foreshadow, there's one coming who will be the son of sorrow, but one day will be the son at the Lord's right hand. There'll be one who'll suffer on a cross to pay for the penalty of our sins and a sorrow unimaginable. But his name will change from the one of sorrow to the one who has triumphed and now who sits with God in eternity at his right hand and in his glory. Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? It's the place of David. When the Bible says to David, you will have someone from your line, always the king, over the nation in the natural did that happen that's not a trick question no a few generations later there was not an heir of david on the throne did god lie to david when he said david i'm gonna bless you so much there will always be an heir of yours on the throne what's god saying here there's a messiah who's coming His name is Jesus will be born of Mary and Joseph. And Joseph is the line of David. He's related to David. And out of that line, the Messiah will come. And that Messiah will rule for eternity yet to come. The fulfillment came in a way they never imagined. David never dreamed it. Hallelujah. Oh, but when Jesus came, everybody said, oh yeah, that's what that verse meant. It was pointing to the way of the Messiah. Verse 2 says, His coming was planned long ago from the beginning. The Hebrew word there is alam or alma, which means from of old, from everlasting. The commentators say that it's the strongest word that can be used for eternity past. So it is saying, you came from eternity past which is another way of saying Jesus had a divine origin, which is another way of saying he is God, he is divine. All in this verse is saying, look, the Messiah just doesn't show up at Bethlehem. He always was. You just keep going back in history, go back into eternity. If you push it all the way back, as far as the mind can comprehend, he's the second person of the Godhead. He's always been there. But now in the incarnation, he's, taking on flesh to be the perfect substitute for man's sin. It points to the incarnation. This verse says this, the secret is out. God himself is coming in the person of a Messiah to rescue humanity. The atonement is leaking out now. The son of sorrow is coming to pay for the sorrow of your sin And he is going to be the Lord. The Bible says, and he will rule. It says, he will rule for me in Israel. Now, how does this happen? Is is Jesus ruling right now in Israel? No. It said he was going to rule. So in one sense, it's foreshadowing the ingathering of Israel and the unveiling of the Savior to Israel. Romans speaks of that but it's also pointing to something else. Is Jesus ruling anywhere today in this room? Where? He's ruling in here. Come on friends, is Jesus the Lord of anybody's life? If he's the Lord of your life, raise your hand. The word Lord means ruler. This is prophesying. There's a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to set up a kingdom first in the heart of his people and then one day to manifest it at his second coming in the nations of the world. I'm glad he's ruling in my heart today from eternity past. This verse gives us Jesus' birthplace, his humanity, asserts his deity, and hence to his mission. That's why the scribes and the Pharisees knew this verse. And that's why they say Jesus, the Messiah, rather, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Verse 3 says, And he will give them up until the time when the woman in pain gives birth to a child. Pause right there. The pain of the woman in childbirth. Who's the woman here, do you think? Mary? Mary? The Virgin Mary, it says, we're going to have trouble in the land until the woman has the Messiah, the pain of childbirth. Where does this pain of childbirth, does that ring a bell, pain of childbirth? When God spoke to Eve after she had sinned, she says, Eve, I'm not done with you, but listen to me, Eve. You're all women after you're going to have pain in childbirth. But there'll be a day when you have pain in childbirth or your descendants and you're going to give birth to a seed, a man who will crush the devil's head. It's all alluding here to Genesis chapter 3 that there's going to be a woman, a real woman, a natural woman, a flesh and blood woman who's going to have a divine son who's all God and all man who's going to redeem the nations. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. Again, pointing to two things, the end gathering of Israel in the end times, but figuratively for the church, that those of us that were far off from God, didn't want nothing to do with God. We had enmity with God. Didn't even know if God existed. The Savior comes and says, just come on home from the distant lands. Come on back. You're no longer in captivity. You're no longer a slave. Come on back home. Anybody grateful you've been asked to come home in God? Thank you for the five of you that clapped. Hey, you in the front row, there's a lot of clapping happens in the back here. Up here, you're kind of quiet. So the first four rows, please, would you please clap? Thank you. You're row six. I'm sorry, ma'am. You were out of line there. I sometimes forget this is being watched by people all over the place. Verse five says this, verse four. And he will come and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Come and feed his flock. Some translate, he will come and shepherd. What kind of a Messiah do we have? Is it one that rules us with the rod of iron and punishes us every time we make a mistake or regret a decision. No, the Bible says when this Messiah comes, he's going to feed you. In the strength of the Lord, in the great power of the name of the Lord our God, his people will live there and be safe. He's gonna give you security because at that time, his name will be great to the ends of the earth. This verse says when the Messiah comes, Look at that, verse 4. He's going to come with great power. Here, I'm declaring to you today, in this second Sunday of Abbot, when the Savior came, Yeshua HaMashiach, when the, Savior, when the Savior Jesus Christ came to the world, He came in great power. He didn't come just as a good teacher. He didn't come just as a philosopher. He didn't come as a rabbi. He came as the Son of God with great power power. No demon can stand against him. No sickness can resist his healing power. And he can say to any mountain in your life, be removed and cast into the sea. Why? We have a savior that's got great power, not little power, not moderate power, not the ever ready bunny power. He's got great power. He creates all things in six days. He can take care of me. I just want to say to the devil, who's your daddy? The Messiah's name this verse of the last brother says, "His name will be great in all of the earth." The book of Daniel said he will be the chief mountain in the earth. His message will go all around the world, the prophet says, as the waters cover the sea. His glory shall be known by all the nations. He shall have dominion forever and ever. He's a great and mighty God. And then verse 5 says, And he, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, will be their peace he doesn't say, he'll give you peace. He says, he will be your peace. Friends, listen to me. When Jesus is your peace, you get a divorce from your circumstances. You get a divorce from the approval of people. You get a divorce from the health of your body. Body, people, and circumstances you don't my peace. You don't dictate my joy. You don't dictate my sense of purpose and being. For what can man do to me? Yes. Angels, what can you do to me? Yes. Past, what can you do to me? Yes. Future, I'm not afraid of you. Yes. Why? Jesus is my peace. Yes. Jesus is my peace. It's supernatural. Listen, you can fake it, you can fake it, you can fake it, but there'll be a day you can't fake it when all hell breaks loose and everything you've tethered your peace to is stripped away. It's in a day like that you can sleep well because you have a Savior who says in this prophecy, in me you shall dwell securely. That's pretty good preaching right there. I got shouting and little alliteration, a little emotion. Now the whole room is clapping. I'm very proud of you all. Let me do three takeaways quickly. Three takeaways quickly. Number one, God chose Bethlehem. Why? To magnify his name. Why Bethlehem? He wanted to contrast the littleness and the insignificance of Bethlehem with the greatness of the one who was coming to her. He chose something small and out of the way to change history. God says, I will not share my glory with a great city or a great person. Bethlehem, the place of David, the youngest of the family. The place of David who slew a giant with a slingshot of all weapons. God saying, be, Bethlehem points that God chooses young people, slingshots, small towns, mustard seeds, obscure people, people in apartment buildings, people who've just been through divorce, people on their deathbed, people from backwater towns. says, I choose you. What's the way to attract God? This is how you attract God. I'm serious, this is how you attract God. I'm small, I'm needy, I don't deserve you, the fault's all mine, I'm not great, I'm not big, I can't figure it out, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy and the chief of sinners have mercy and God's mercy in the Messiah runs to you. Rather than saying, I'm pretty good. I'm not like that guy. I'm going to judge that politician. I'm going to judge that person. I'm going to judge that young person. I'm going to judge that church. I'm going to judge that song. I'm going to judge that skirt. Too short. You get my, what I'm doing there? Judge that thing. Oh, why am I looking at you, Melvin? I don't know. Every time I give a sin example, I look at Melvin. I don't know what's going on. First Corinthians chapter 1 says, but God choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I'm in that camp. Pastor Wayne, we're from South Dakota. Little towns, little fellowships, towns far apart, three, four, five people in a little Bible study. We're pastoring a church of 5,000 with 80 missionaries all around the world. Shaking a city known in the nations. How the heck did that happen? God loves to shame the big boys with the little boys. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast. Jesus didn't come to the great city of Sicily Philippi. He didn't come to the great city of Jerusalem. He didn't come to Rome. He came to a little town who didn't even get listed in the book. Remember, Paul couldn't speak. Peter had a temper. Mary Magdalene had a past. Thomas was a doubter. Elijah was chronically depressed. And Elizabeth was too old. God doesn't choose cities and peoples on the basis of their merit. This is such a beautiful picture of salvation. I'm a little town, Lord. I'm a little person, Lord. Will the Messiah come to my town? Number two, God demonstrates his providence in Bethlehem. What does that mean? It means this, Mary and Joseph had an encounter with God where the angel of the Lord said, Mary, you're going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord met with Joseph, and the angel said to him in a dream, do not put her away. Marry her. Take care of her. They have, the, they have encounters with real angels telling them that a miracle baby is on its way and it's their life has something very special that's going to happen to it. Nine months later, the Bible says they go to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. Why? The governor told them they had to go back to their hometown. They go back to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. They don't have any reservations. They've got to find a place to stay, and they go into a stable, and they, and they, and they settle for the night, and she has a baby. What's God's providence? There could be a promise over your life, a prophetic word over your life something that God has spoken over your life and you think now what do I what do I do just live your life be the faithful husband the faithful wife be a good carpenter don't be a weirdo you know and act special don't act special thinking that by acting special, talking weird and singing all the time is gonna bring God's plan into your life. If he promised it, just live your life in faith and in faithfulness and pay your taxes and take care of your home and get your donkey and put your stuff on a donkey and obey the law and go on a trip all the while you don't know that the prophetic word is coming to pass that night. That's divine providence. Right now, God is at work bringing a miracle into your life. And you say, oh, Dan, what do I do to get it? What do I do to get it? Just live your life. Don't do something stupid like run off with a secretary. (laughs) Don't do something stupid like steal some money. Don't do something stupid like go to some other church besides New Life. (laughs) You know, I'm teasing there. Just live faithful. Bethlehem. God just needs a little bit of faith. A mustard seed's pretty darn small. Lord, I'll give you a mustard seed. That's all I got. And I'm just gonna live my life, sleep well, eat well, play well, go to church, love my family, love my kids, do a good job on the job, pray, do the things I'm supposed to do. And I'm just, know that you'll do what you said you would do when you want to do it and i just believe in right now you're putting every all the chess pieces in the right place for the final move when your prophecy comes to pass and the third and final point as we close today why bethlehem god revealed his great love for us in a small town called bethlehem the gospel prefigures grace and mercy Bethlehem, this place of bread, says that if you will receive this Savior, the Prince of Peace will be manifested to you. Today, why Bethlehem? Because the bread of life was born in a city called the House of Bread. And today he offers you bread from above supernatural that if you'll partake of it by faith, you'll never be hungry again. He offers you water today that when you drink it, you drink it unto eternal life and you'll never thirst again. Your deepest hunger today is not acceptance by another. It's not a better job, the perfect marriage, the large bank account. Your hunger today is really spiritual. Every problem at its core is spiritual. Why Bethlehem? Because the bread of God has come. The Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Father, we thank you today that you sent a ruler into the nations, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus because of him you're gathering people by forgiving them of their sins and you're giving them a peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, Lord, for the small town with insignificant people that gave birth to a great God and Savior. It's in the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed our sermon today. I hope that you were inspired and challenged. And maybe you have a question about something that you heard in the message today, or maybe you need prayer. We would love to take the time to pray with you and answer any questions that you might have. All you need to do is simply send us an email to online at newlife.global and we would love to connect with you. Well, be sure to subscribe to our channel. You should see the link right over here somewhere and turn those notifications on. That way you are notified every single time we go live on YouTube. Well, God bless you. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you on the next video. Take care.